Hi, I'm Andrea Callis at the British Film Institute. For those of you who are wirelessly multitasking, that's www.bfi.org.uk. Um, uh, for those of you who don't know the British Film Institute, uh, you know, I like to say we've been providing access to heritage moving images since 1938. That's before I worked there. I was still working with, at UCLA with Jane. Um, and we do an enormous range of activities at the BFI, if you're not familiar with it. We have theaters on the South Bank. We have a DVD label. We have a publishing arm that does books and a, a magazine called Sight and Sound you may be familiar with. We have the archive, which um, our marketing department is currently arguing is the largest in the world. And I don't really try to dissuade them from that view. Um, and we have incredible film festivals, the London Film Festival, which you've probably heard of. And, we released the Gay and Lesbian Film Festival, which started, you know, in the mid-80s, sort of way ahead of a lot of people. So it's a fantastic organization with lots of different things going on all the time. In the sort of educational online space, um, a really incredible resource is Screen Online, which is screenonline.org.uk. Uh, uh, and it's really become a definitive resource for people looking for information about British film and television. Um, we've just begun a fantastic project, which has been funded by JISC, which uh, Murray referred to earlier, which is the higher education funding body to allow resources to be available online. Um, and the project that we're starting is called Voices, Moving Images in the Public Sphere. And the project really is about having a curatorial viewpoint towards these moving image resources, to give them a way of actually having context and narrative, some of the words I've heard today, to really display them. So there'd be themes having to do with um, political, social, economic history in the 20th century in Britain. And the idea is that moving images have played a key role in those kinds of histories, and that different moving images often give a different viewpoint. And our plan is to actually juxtapose those different moving images online and give people a chance to actually look at the different ways a particular event or idea was expressed through moving images. Um, we're really excited about this project, and it's really a tribute to JISC as well, because it's 600 hours, so it's not a large quantity of material. We're, we are emphasizing quality in a lot of ways. Quality through the interpretation, through our curatorial staff that will be working on a lot of the work as well as quality of the actual archival image. Um, they're very supportive of efforts that take into account preservation as well as access. So we're really thrilled with that, but that's not what I'm going to talk about. Um, I'm actually going to talk about, um, just go over here, a little bit about co-production that we've done with the BBC. Um, and we did, uh, uh, We've actually come together with something that I think is really exciting, and I think to sort of start it off, I'll just show a little clip. This is Bradford on Thursday, the 10th of April, 1902, filmed from the front of a tram. This film was made by the early filmmakers, Sagar Mitchell and James Kenyon. It's just one of hundreds of their films recently discovered in a cellar in Blackburn, Lancashire. The films were nearly lost forever. 
They take us to the world of the real Edwardians in a way our generation has never seen before. We will find out who these people were and what their lives were like. As a result of the popularity of the Mitchell and Kenyon program, the BBC now regularly co-produce with the British Film Institute. Uh, we've done another program called The Open Road, which I'll talk about a little later as well. And we're re working right now on um, a production, co-production about the Dalai Lama, based very much on footage that we have in the collection. And the idea of the co-production really allows us to um, work together to use the best efforts of both the archive as well as the BBC together. So just a little bit about Mitchell and Kenyon and that footage that you saw, because uh, it is really compelling. Uh, Mitchell and Kenyon were the last names of two portrait photographers that uh, were based in Blackburn in the north of England. And they saw an opportunity uh, before moving images really had a wide distribution from any kind of studio setting or company. They were novelties, and they were novelties for people to go and see at carnivals and in city halls. And so they took their cameras out where there would be lots of people, which meant coming out of factory gates or along city streets, and just filmed them with big signs saying, come and see yourself later at the carnival or the, or the, the townhouse. And what they did, actually, which was fantastic, was actually record all these amazing faces from that time period. So that's why there's extraordinary material. The archive worked. Um, closely, the BFI worked closely with the University of Sheffield in actually interpreting and cataloging these films as well, and that's an important connection for education as well, is that we did work with them to actually build this um, information about the films, because it wasn't immediately available from just a roll of film in a can. So this is one of the kinds of materials that our colleagues at University of Sheffield found to actually show where these materials were shown, to give them some provenance and some context. Um, you know, so this business opportunity for this novelty, as I said, turned into this amazing social record. And they were really ordinary people in everyday situations. And this is, um, this slide here is just from Morecambe, a seaside resort in, in England. Um, and it was all the north of England um, and Scotland and some of Ireland that some of these materials were shot. Um, there were over 800 nonfiction titles between 1900 and 1913, and original negatives for those archivists recovered and otherwise in the audience from this, from this time period are incredibly rare. Prints are what survive most of the time. So this gave us this amazingly beautiful kind of condition and quality of the image from this period as well. They would film anything they thought people would pay to see. But by filming at factory gates, as in this film, they would be guaranteed big audiences. The people they filmed would be curious enough to pay to see themselves on screen. They were shown in tents at fairgrounds and in music halls all over the Northwest. And these local films were the most popular item on the bill.
But these amazing films only came to light in 1994 by accident. Builders are refitting a shop when they discover three metal churns in a cold basement full of old film. They were nearly thrown away, but fortunately, they handed them over to local film historian Peter Worden instead. He realised immediately that this was a forgotten treasure of Mitchell and Kenyon films. He stored them carefully before donating the find to the nation. The British Film Institute took charge of this Doric collection and painstakingly restored it. It took three years, but now the results are amazing. A hundred-year-old films with hardly a scratch. Many as clear as the day they were shot. Covered three metal churns in a cold basement full of old film. They were nearly thrown away, but fortunately, they handed them over to local film historian Peter Worden instead. He realised immediately that this was a forgotten treasure of Mitchell and Kenyon films. He stored them carefully before donating the find to the nation. The British Film Institute took charge of this Doric collection and painstakingly restored it. It took three years, but now the results are amazing. A hundred-year-old films with hardly a scratch. Many as clear as the day they were shot. So that's a clip just to give more of the footage, but also just to show you how the BBC program absolutely relied on a lot of the research that the BFI and University of Sheffield had done to actually create the information about the program. Um, and we did, you know, a very wide release of the programs. There was theatrical lease across the country, academic conferences. You know, they, Mitchell and Kenyon was both canon changing in the sort of film studies, but it was also a household world around the country. Claude's adventurous journey took him past 150 places, from mountaintops to bustling cities. Along the way, he filmed these faces of grown-ups and children belonging to a bygone era. from The Open Road, which was um, a second project that we did with um, BBC co-production called in this, their Lost World series. And here's just an example of some of the research that we did about The Open Road, about how uh, the information about cars and travel and amateur footage was all happening about 1926 when these films were being made um, and touring the British countryside was being sold in a lot of ways. Um, and Claude Fries Green, son of William Fries Green, the British pioneer, was really behind this whole process to do um, this kind of color process. And um, it was a, based on a kinema color process. And it was so popular that it sort of filled theaters as large as some IMAX theaters are now. This one was called the Scala on Charlotte Street in London. And um, this is a picture of Claude with his camera on a boat. Coloured positive was shown at a fast speed, indeed a speed faster than most projectors were running at the time. The um, images combined through the eye and the brain, through the mechanics of the brain really, to create the illusion of a natural 
full-coloured world. Amazing, really. And Claude said that um, this film would work in any cinema, providing that cinema had a projector that could run at a faster-than-usual speed. And, of course, that, for Claude, was a very powerful pitch, sales pitch, for his colour process. However, it was a tricky process, and for audiences at the time, we think the end result might have looked rather like this. For us nowadays, it's not that easy to watch. But with modern-day printing technology, the British Film Institute, who carefully preserved and stored Claude's archive, has succeeded in making this much more watchable version. A very powerful pitch, sales pitch, for his colour process. However, it was a tricky process, and for audiences at the time, we think the end result might have looked rather like this. For us nowadays, it's not that easy to watch. But with modern-day printing technology, the British Film Institute, who carefully preserved and stored Claude's archive, has succeeded in making this much more watchable version. I'm just going to show you one final clip of the restoration that we did. So this is the... And... Um, so again, I think, you know, the research that the producer, Emma Hindley, of these programs, who was fantastic, did, she absolutely paid attention to the kind of accuracy and historical research we'd done, both with the technology and the surrounding contextual history. And um, it gave us, gives us a chance to, to showcase this work that we do, spend a lot of time on restoring. Uh, because Claude... Um, had sort of a red and green um, palette. He liked redheads, <laughs> or gingers, as we call them. Here's some more information about the open road. And I have to just end quickly with a shot from our Mediatek on the South Bank. If you're in London, you must come by. We have about 400 hours of archive footage available there, which is another way we're giving access to the world. Thanks very much.